There we go. It is uh, a text that, by inspiration, he has had the New Testament writers either quote or allude to some 33 times. More than any other text in the psalm, and actually more than any other text in the Old Testament. So this is a, a big one. You can imagine with all of that, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of discussion going on. Um, the thing to note right up front is that the Psalm of David, you see that at the very start of the psalm, um, a Hebrew preposition, as Tremper Longman says, can be slippery things. So a Psalm of David actually could mean it's a psalm by David, that he wrote it. It could be a psalm to David that somebody wrote for him, or it could be a psalm of David, it's about him. It can mean any of those things. But Jesus in the New Testament settles this definitively for us by saying this is a psalm that David wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that passage a little bit later. It is difficult. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of difficult things in here. Verse 3 is considered to be one of the most difficult psalms, uh, difficult verses in the psalms to translate. And verse 1 and verse 4, there's, uh, there's libraries filled with the books and articles that have been written about those. There's different uh, ways of perceiving these. You are obviously going to get what I think this morning. But if it's different than what you've heard, I, I want to say this. All Bible-believing Christians come to an agreement on this psalm at 586 B.C., when the temple is destroyed and the monarchy ends, everybody believes the same thing about this psalm. So the discussions are all what happens before that and how we interpret the psalms. But everybody believes, who's Bible-believing, that this psalm finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So if I say something a little different than what you've heard before, um, it's got to be said in this day and age where anytime somebody disagrees with somebody else, we automatically, you know, us, them, categorizing... We're all just trying to understand the text as best we can. And ultimately we know this text finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as we saw in Hebrews uh, 7. Well, on May 6th, uh, an interesting event happened. Um, king Charles was coronated. He was crowned as king of England. You know, some of you know that I studied over there, became a little bit of an Anglophile. Well, I was there, and so I went home one day. Holly wasn't there, and I turned it on. I thought I'd just watch a few minutes, and I ended up watching almost the whole thing. And it was this big, elaborate ceremony. Um, it was kind of fun to watch. He sat on the throne of King Edward I some seven, 800 years ago. He's handed the scepter and the orb and the crown. And Justin Welby, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, somebody that we would never have preach here, I can tell you that, but he orchestrated the ceremony, and, and it was fun to watch. Here's a picture of the illustrious King Charles. But I'm not a fan. I thought pretty highly of his mom, but I'm not a fan. He's the oldest monarch ever to be crowned, and it was kind of pathetic. And part of it was that... We all know it's a sham that the king of England, the queen of England, has, tr has influence. His mom had a tremendous amount of influence, but there's no real power. They're celebrating what once was. It used to be the coronation of the most powerful person on earth, the head of the British Empire. 
And now in this coronation, if you watched it, you know that the commentators were saying, well, actually, this is a really good thing for them to do, not because it's power, but because the amount of income from visitors and, and the media dwarfed the expense of the coronation. So the coronation became down to a matter of dollars and cents or pounds and pence or whatever you want to say. It was something that was a shadow of its former substance. Now what I want to suggest is that Psalm 110 as a royal psalm is exactly the opposite. That it is a shadow of which Jesus is the substance. And so as we follow it through, it becomes fuller and deeper and more profound. And we see the, the, the references to it literally explode in the New Testament with its profundity. Well, if you look at the structure of Psalm 110, it's in two different halves. You have two declarations. Now, the ESV has the Lord says. That's not strong enough. The word there is it's an oracle. It's a declaration. It's, it's an unalterable statement. You see in verse 4, it's, it's paralleled with oath. Uh, and so you have these two oracles, these two statements of God, followed by an explanation of the military and political rule. And then you have the refreshment or rest. So they're paralleled. They have a lot of correspondences. You can see that the, um, the destruction of enemies occurs there in, in ver- 2 and then in 5 and 6. There's the universal rule that the scepter extends from Zion in verse 2, and then you have the nations mentioned in verse 6. God is at the right hand. Um, the Lord is at the right hand of Yahweh in the first line, and then in verse 5, Adonai is on the right hand of the king. It's so balanced that the Jewish scholar David Friedman parsed it out in in Hebrew, and each half has 74 syllables. It's that balanced. So Bruce Waltke says that the prophet may have been in ecstasy because this is a prophecy. It's the oracle. It's the the Lord's statement that David is being privy to. The prophet may have been in prophetic ecstasy, but he's in full control of his thoughts and emotions because this is a masterfully composed poem. Verses 1 and 4, you can see, are the declarations. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the most quoted verse by the New Testament. And then in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So let's go work through some of the details here as we work through it. Who is being addressed? And this is the discussion that, that uh, takes people into two different views. There are three titles here. You see, the Lord says to my Lord. The first Lord you see is in all capitals. That is the divine name, Yahweh, we usually say. The Lord himself says to my Lord, I don't think it should be capitalized. You see, I didn't capitalize it up there. It's Adani, and it almost always refers to a human, a master, a superior. Then over in verse 5, you see the same word, Lord, only there it's Adonai, which is a divine name. 
So you've got Lord showing up in many times. For us English speakers, it can be a bit confusing. One view is that um, the Lord, that Yahweh says to my Lord, that that Lord is actually someone beyond any king of Israel. That nobody ever really fit that bill. And so many people think that this person is the Messiah. That this psalm, from the moment that the ink hit the scroll, this was about the Messiah. And uh, they interpret then the second one as, as divinity or close to it. And these scholars, many of them who are, are people that we love and cherish their works, uh, they allow the New Testament to influence the teaching. And if that's your position, uh, that's great. Because some of the, my most favorite preachers and teachers and scholars hold that position. In fact, Derek Kidner that uh, Matt suggested last week, a fabulous commentary, um, strongly holds that position. But there's another way to think about it, and that is that Yahweh is speaking to the king. Now, the previous you would say that, that too, but they would just say that that king, there never was any such king, which we would agree. But David is writing this for the coronation, like King Charles, the liturgy that would happen as the king is crowned. And so this psalm would be used to celebrate the crowning of a king. Not the only thing that it would be used for, but it could be used for that. It's clearly about the king. It's from Zion, a mighty scepter. It's clearly a royal psalm. Um, and so David is, is writing this so that it could be used for his lineage as they are crowned. It meant something to David. That's my assumption, that David, when he wrote this, even though it was a prophecy, this meant something to him, and he, he had his wits about him. He wasn't just seeing a vision and writing it down, but this meant something to him historically. And the final thing that I'll say, and the reason that I, I think it's more um, a coronation, is that if this is Messianic at 1000 B.C., because Jesus said it was written by David, I think that we would see more evidence of it in the, in the years leading up to Jesus. If this was the level of Messianic understanding that they had, I think we would see more um, clarity in their views leading up to Jesus. So my personal take is that what David is saying here is he is writing this to his son and, or sons, and it's for their enthronement as kings of Israel. And I think that it flows out of his covenant that God made with him in 2 Samuel 7, when God promised him a great name that you see there, that he's going to have the mighty scepter and he's going to have the, uh, the, the great renowned that he's that will be his that he's going to have the land which will actually encompass all of the nations that the people will be there with him in verse three the rest and the refreshment of three and seven 
and the temple building. In verse 4. I think that what happened was that David had this covenant given to him, and it was so enthralling and so exciting and so invigorating that he wrote a hymn about it. A hymn of expectation of what God was going to do to fulfill those promises to his sons. It's tied to David's history. But at the same time, it's forward-looking, it's expectation. So I certainly wouldn't deny that there's an element of messianicness to it because David is anticipating the fulfillment that one of his sons at some point is going to have those promises fulfilled. The scepter will come. Rule, that's an imperative. He's not saying, hey, why don't you rule? He's saying, you rule. A very strong, strong word. And so David writes this, and I think it's a hymn that is used, of the Davidic dynasty as David looks forward to having the covenant promises that God gave him fulfilled. It's prophetic, but it's also tied to his history. You can see there, then as we work through it, that it's set from Zion. Um, That's very similar to Psalm 2, isn't it? I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. The scepter will go out from there, sent by Yahweh, not by the king. The people, in verse 3, this is a tough one, but the people who seem to be following David will offer themselves freely. That word is actually free will offering. They will be free will offerings themselves on the day of his power. Power there... um, Mm-hmm. If you note the, uh, the one, if you have an ESV, it says down, on the day you lead your forces. Uh, that's probably better. It's a power, is, it's not so much that word as it is a, a mustering together. Um, the NIV has on the day of your battle. It's the day when you bring your people together for your mission and your conquest. They're robed in holy garments. This could be referring to the king, but I think it's talking about his people. His people gather themselves voluntarily, dressed in priestly holy garbs to offer themselves for him, and they are refreshing to him like the dew of the morning. And numerous, like the dew that just appears on the grass. That his people, the people of God, gather around him, just like God had promised to David in his covenant. Verses 5 and 6, you can see, are are brutal. Shatter kings, filling with corpses. Shatter chiefs. It's going to be a complete and utter victory. On the day of His wrath, on the day of the Lord, absolute victory. And He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Um, Quite honestly, nobody's got a absolute lockdown explanation for this. I'll tell you what came to my mind, and I was thankful to hear somebody else mention it too. I thought of the picture of Gideon. You remember Gideon's story? So she shows up. He's going to fight, I think it was the Midianites. And the Lord says, you got too many men. If you fight with this many people, you're going to think that you did it yourself. So let's send a few of them home. Here's what I want you to do. Have everybody go get a drink. And if you drink from the brook... By, by 
bringing the water up to your mind and keeping an outlook, you keep those guys. And 300 of them did that. If you, if they drink by putting their head down into the water and just drinking it, unaware of what's happening around them, he said, send them home. I think that might be the image that's here, that the king's victory is so complete that the enemies are so shattered that when he takes a drink, he doesn't have to be careful. He just drinks and lifts up his head in complete confidence of the victory that has been his. So the king has this world domination, this global domination that God, <coughs> excuse me, that God has given him of his people following him and his enemies being made his footstool, sitting in Zion at the right hand of God, which was a very, very common metaphor in the ancient Near East of a king. In fact, there's pictures, the code of Hammurabi has the picture of it. Hammurabi receiving his crown from God on his right hand. So I think that's what's going on here is that David is anticipating the, um, the completion of God's promises to him. And that brings us to the second difficult verse. And that is verse 4, Melchizedek. What do we say about Melchizedek? He shows up, you see there uh, at the bottom, he's mentioned only in Genesis 14, here in 110.4, and in the letter of Hebrews. Um, in Genesis 14, Abraham has just gone to war, and he comes back, uh, having conquered the, the kings, got his, his people back and, and the plunder from the kings. And as he returns home, he's met by the king of Sodom. And king so the king of Sodom says, hey, listen, you keep the plunder and I'll take the people. That sounds really nice, but that's just the way it was done. So he's just basically saying, you know, give me my people back. But he has no right to the plunder. And Abram says, you keep it. I don't want you saying that I've done anything for you. And then this guy named Melchizedek shows up. His name means king of righteousness. He's king of Salem, which is peace, Jerusalem. And in their interaction, Abraham treats him as a superior. He pays him a tithe, and Melchizedek, as the superior, blesses Abraham. That's pretty much the extent of the story. Uh, Melchizedek feeds him bread and wine, which is interesting. Um... But that's really all that we have. And then, perhaps a thousand or so years later, we have this. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is going on here? Well, some people think that, um, that this is what's called a Christophany. An appearance of Jesus before his incarnation. That Melchizedek is actually Jesus appearing there. Um, I, I'm not going to quibble with that. I was listening to a, a lecture uh, by Don Carson, and uh, um, Carson says, "I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong, but I think you're wrong." <laughs> um, that's what he said. Uh, I don't think that it's a Christophany for two two reasons. First, Melchizedek seems to be the picture by which we understand Jesus, and second, I think I have up there. 
Um, yeah, in Hebrews 7, 3, oh, it didn't do a, that's 7, chapter 7, verse 3, that transfer didn't do the superscript. But in 7, 3, it says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, which I think is fairly definitive in my mind anyway. That Melchizedek is a historical figure by which we understand Jesus. Why did David mention him? Why was he a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? How could that be? Well, Alec Moter, in his commentary on the Psalms, which I would highly recommend, I think it's called Psalms by the Day, it's a devotional, and then he's written notes on the side of it. Um, it's absolutely fabulous. So if you get that one and you get Kidner, you are in good shape with those guys. Um, both British, I think Kidner was Anglican, and so was Moter. Moter points out that in Joshua 10.1, there is a fellow by the name of Adonazedek. The same thing here is this word, my Lord, Adonazedek. And that he was king of Salem. It seems that the king of Salem had a priestly role. The names are similar. So that when you were king of Salem, you were a priest king. When David then became the king of Jerusalem, he too became a priest king. Any of you Doctor Who fans? You're a doctor, but you're not that kind of doctor. And David is saying you're a priest, but you're not that kind of a priest. Because you can be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but a, a king in Israel cannot be a priest after the Levitical order. It cannot be. Not even Jesus can do that. Let me be quick to say, Jesus can't do it because Jesus said he couldn't do it. He wrote the rules and then followed them. But in the Old Covenant, a priest could not be a king. David knew this. The whole reason that David was a king was because that's what happened to Saul. Saul was going to war against the Philistines, and Samuel was going to come and offer sacrifices. And, and for some reason, I can't remember right now, Samuel was delayed. And every morning Saul got up and his army was a little bit smaller because the men were getting scared and going home. And he said, I've got to do something. And so Saul took it upon himself to offer the sacrifices, to ritually offer the sacrifice, to do what the priests do. And Samuel shows up, and he says, Saul, because you have done this, because you have disobeyed that distinction, God is going to take the kingdom from you and give it to somebody else. And that somebody else was David. The reason David was king of Israel is because Saul had ignored this and refused to, um, to keep the distinction. So David knew that a king could not be a priest in Israel under the Old Covenant. Now, spoiler alert, what if there's a new covenant? But, but we gotta, we'll get there at the end. Um, David knew that a priest could, be, could do, uh, that a king could do priestly things. The main thing that they could do is to build the temple. That was in the Davidic Covenant, shows up again in Zechariah. In fact, Jesus says... Destroy this temple, speaking of himself, and I will build it again in three days. Building the temple was a priestly duty. They were providers for the temple. Um, 
activities. They appointed priests. They wrote liturgies. They offered sacrifices, not did the rituals, but they offered the sacrifice, made sure the sacrifices happened. They gave their blessing like Aaron did. Uh, Solomon did all of these things too. But mostly important, most important, the way the spiritual temperature of the nation followed the spiritual temperature of the king. That as the mediator, the king led them towards God or away from God. So there was a parallel priesthood. You could do priestly things after the order of Melchizedek, the priest king, but it could not encroach in the Levitical priesthood. I hope that makes sense. Let me give you one more example. King Uzziah was a very good king until it went to his head. And his power overcame him, and he thought that he was a strong enough king that he should be able to be a priest as well. And so one day he went into the holy place, not clear into the Holy of Holies, but he went into the holy place to offer uh, incense on the altar of incense. The priests came in, they said, you do not belong here, you need to leave, this is not your role. And Uzziah begins to get his uh, dander up and assert his authority, and the Lord struck him with leprosy. And so he was unclean, and he died as a leper, unclean. Uh, There's a little interesting bit. Um, about a couple hundred years before Jesus, as the city of Jerusalem was, was growing, they had to move some of the graves outside of the city walls because they were unclean. And this one actually is Uzziah's headstone as they moved him outside of the city walls right before Jesus' time. And you can see the inscription there. Hither were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah. Do not open, because he was unclean. So the Lord struck him, and that's actually his gravestone. It's kind of cool, isn't it? It's not just a story. There it is. So those two things could not be joined. So when David says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he is not thinking that somehow they're going to come together. There are parallel priesthoods, and it's going to be for somebody else to join them. I hope that that is clear because it's a big, a big deal um, in this psalm. So then, um, about the time, like I said, about the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, it became evident to everybody when the kingship ended that this psalm was not going to be fulfilled historically in Israel. And at that point, it became completely messianic. Everybody expected that the Messiah was going to be the one to fulfill this. So by the time Jesus comes around, um, <clears throat> it is uh, across the board thought to be a messianic psalm. And Jesus talks about this psalm. Right before the end of his life, He's in Jerusalem, and he gets into a series of, of discussions with the religious leaders that all focus around who gets to authoritatively interpret Scripture. And um, some of them come to him, and they say, well, what about taxes? And Jesus answers that question. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And then they ask him about what's the greatest commandment. That was an active debate of how do you distill the law down to the... To the um, the most succinct statement. It's a fascinating discussion, and Matt will lead us through that when we get to that later in Matthew. 
And Jesus answers that one perfectly. They came to assess Jesus, and Jesus ends up assessing them, saying, you're, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. The Sadducees come who don't believe in the resurrection, and they've taken a story from Tobit out of the Apocrypha and kind of mashed it with uh, Leverite marriage, and they've asked him, if a woman has seven husbands and they all die, whose, husband, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you believe only in the law, right? And he goes back to the law and says, you don't understand resurrection. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. So there are discussions about interpretation. And then Jesus says, I've got one for you. And he brings up Psalm 110. Here it is out of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying the Lord to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, I think that we can discuss back and forth the Lord and the superiority and all that, but I think it might be to miss what Jesus is actually saying. If you look at your Bibles, there's something so ingrained in us, and it was ingrained in them too, that psalm never mentions a son. When David says that he is referred to, this king, if not a son, it's my Lord. And Jesus is saying, if, if it's not even mentioned, you haven't read it close enough. The Messiah, just like the resurrection with the Sadducees, the Messiah is going to be more than what you think he is. If you read it closer, you might see that this psalm is pointing to you to something that you missed the first time around. That it's not just going to be another king, another son of David. It's going to be someone much greater, much more. And Jesus is more explicit then when he gets to the end and the high priest asks him, are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of the power. There's Psalm 110.1. And coming on the clouds of heaven, there's Daniel 7. 14? Well, whatever. Daniel 7. He pushes them together and he says, I am that one. I am the one who will have global domination. I am the one who will sit at the right hand of the Father. I am the one who will be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. I am that guy. I am the one who will ascend to the Ancient of Days and he will give me all authority. And the priest just tears his robe and he says, he has said it. Kill him. And that's what they did. So, so let me recap here just real briefly. What I'm suggesting is that God made promises to David in that covenant, which actually, if you caught that, sound very much like the promises that he made to Abraham. The promises that govern the scripture, and it says that this person that he promises to David will fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham. So you can see the storyline is really flowing there. He made those promises to David, and David, out of his gratitude and joy, writes a hymn that celebrates and expects that God is going to fulfill these promises through this king. But it doesn't happen. And as it develops, the expectation begins to wane, and they realize that someone else is going to have to come, and someone else is going to have to fulfill it. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus says... I'm here. This is about me. 
And the Jews say, no, you're a whack job. You're dangerous. You're horrible, and we're going to kill you. And that's what happens. So what happens then that in the rest of the New Testament, the verse 1 of Psalm 110 literally explodes off the pages? Why do they see that series of events as being critical? Let's look at these real quickly. Here's the, the sermon at Pentecost. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David didn't ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. First Peter. Peter says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven as the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers have been subject to him. Paul. As one man came death, by a man it could the resurrection of the dead. He must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. Colossians 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. What was it? It was the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, they killed him. And then he stood back up. And they realized that they were not dealing with just another king. That he was more than that. That he had defeated death. That he, as the risen king, had conquered death and could conquer all enemies. And he had ascended to the Father. And he is reigning there until that day of God's wrath when all of his enemies will be made his footstool. And they recognized Psalm 110.1 explains it all. And again and again and again. And those are just a few of the references that I could have listed. And then the writer of Hebrews comes. And he does not talk about the resurrection. He says, after the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand. That's verse 3 of the first chapter. And then in verse 10, he says, once he had offered a sacrifice once for all, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The writer of Hebrews doesn't want to talk about verse 1. He wants to talk about verse 4. He wants to talk about the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what he says is fascinating because it's exactly the same thing that David said. He says, Jesus is not qualified to be a Levitical priest. He doesn't have the lineage. He cannot be a Levitical priest. So we need something better, don't we? And he says, there's an order of priesthood that came not through the law, but by an oath. God himself says, this will be the order that is better. And it's based on the fact that it never ends. That Melchizedek is a figure by which we understand that he, he, he just comes and disappears. And the writer says, his priesthood never ends. It, it, it did when he died. But he's a picture of Jesus who, having conquered death, will never have his priesthood end. He is and was and always will be a priest of a better order than Levi because he is a king priest. He is an eternal king priest. He's an eternal king priest of a new covenant. And he's an eternal king priest of a new covenant who has offered himself once for all time for anyone who will come to follow him. This is a better covenant, the writer says. It's a better 
priesthood. And it's based, now he says, on an indestructible life. Because he has risen again, he can purify us from sins because he has offered himself for us. He can sympathize with us. He can identify with us. He can do all those things because he has lived a life like us. And then he has died and risen again as our high priest. And there is never a moment, even at three in the morning, you don't have to worry about calling the high priest and waking him up from our sleep because our high priest forever lives to make intercession for us. It is a better covenant. Having explained that there has to be a new order and a new covenant in chapter 7 and 8, then the writer goes on in chapters 9 and 10 to compare the order of Melchizedek with the order of Levi. And he talks about the sacrifices and he talks about the red heifer and all of those different things that are so fascinating. But really what it is is an ancient version of the old taunt Whatever you can do, I can do better. Whatever the Levites could do, Jesus can do better. And the main point that he keeps driving home, some 15 times in chapters 9 and 10, is the time element. He did it once for all. It's eternal. It's not temporary. It's once for all. He says it again and again and again. The difference, he says, go back and read Psalm 110 again and you will see he is a priest forever. Forever. Read it again. Levi cannot be a priest forever. The priests come and the priests go. They have not received an oath that says you will have this forever. But Jesus did. And so all of this deep theology is packed into this one psalm. And the church, as they realize that Jesus stood up from the grave and ascended to his Father, that this finds its fulfillment in him, that the long-awaited promises to David have been fulfilled in Jesus, the Lord, and not just the Master, but the King, Lord God himself, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A new priestly order with a new king priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this? Well, the first thing I think is we need to think about what this teaches us about Jesus. When you have the psalm that is most used in the New Testament to explain Jesus, that's worth thinking about. The more that we know him, the more that we can love him. And so thinking about uh, what does this mean, what does it say, how does it relate to all of those 33 different quotations and allusions, Jesus is the one that took God's promises to David and fulfilled them as a forever king, forever priest of a better covenant. The second thing in verse 3 is we have to think about what does it mean for his people to be arrayed in holy garments. This king priest offered himself as a better sacrifice so that he could purify us and wash us clean. And remember the white robes of Revelation. He can array us and robe us in white garments forgiven of our sins. His people are called to trust him and accept the forgiveness and the sacrifice and the payment for sins that he made on our behalf because that's what priests did. And in his covenant, he does it better than it was ever done before, once for all. 
This is what Jesus offers and beckons to us. To come to Him, to have those holy garments put on us as we trust Him to take away our sins and wash us with His blood. To make us new and to forgive us and to be our King and our Priest. And that brings to the last thing. His people offer themselves freely. That the world, those who follow this messianic king give themselves to him unreservedly. Sacrifices only once ever got off of the altar. They tended to die there. Actually, Jesus died too, but he rose again. But the idea of a sacrifice is it is total, full devotion to Him. That He does give us holy garments and forgives our sins, but it's part and parcel of us following Him with full abandon. And being His people, whatever the cost to us, because in this Psalm 110 context, they're following Him into war. And war is a dangerous thing. Paul says in Romans 12, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God acceptable to Him. That is our reasonable service. And so Psalm 110 calls us to understand Jesus, to embrace and encounter His call to have our sins forgiven by Him as the new priest, to have ourselves robed in the white robes that signify and symbolize our being cleansed and forgiven and made right with God, and offer ourselves freely for Him and His mission and His purpose. So there is a response for us in 110. It's about Him. And it's about what we do in response to Him. So let's take a few moments uh, to think about. There's a few things to think about in this psalm, aren't there? Just to ponder it for a few minutes before we close with our final song.